Amen. Sometimes it's hard to let worship end, isn't it? Sometimes it's hard, but that was, that was great. Thank you so much to our worship team. Guys, I just wanna say welcome to all of you. If you are a guest at Four Points, if you are a teacher who has come for our Teacher Appreciation Sunday, we are so grateful that you are here. And if you're not a teacher, we're also grateful for you, okay? Let's just be real. We are so excited to worship together and to hear the word of the Lord together today. So, a couple of things. One, if you are a teacher, I just wanna tell you this. Hang in there. You are almost there. You guys are in the month of May, the longest month of the year. I have seen the meme going around on Facebook that May has like 1,600 days or something. It feels like that, doesn't it? You guys are in the home stretch. You are almost to that last day of school. May, I think, has become the new December. It has all the activities, except it doesn't have the baked goods and it doesn't have the presents. So it's not quite as fun. But it has all the activities and teachers, I know that you are overwhelmed. You've got testing and field day and you have all the concerts to go to and the grades to get entered and the plans to get made for next year and packing up your classroom. And it can be overwhelming. And so we as a church, we just wanted to reach out to you and tell you that we are grateful for you and we honor you and we welcome you today. What you do on a daily basis, when I stop and think about it, it's overwhelming. I was a teacher for about 10 years. I taught English language arts journalism for grades seven through 12 for about 10 years in the public school system. And I'm thinking back to those years and it's kind of a blur. Like the things that I did on a daily basis, my to-do list every day, when I think about all of those things I had to do, it's just crazy. And it's kind of like having a newborn baby, right? Like when you're in the fog of it, you don't realize all the things you're doing, you're just surviving. And for, for me, teaching was sometimes like that. But we are just so excited that you guys are here today. And we wanna tell you that part of the reason we honor you is because the work that you do is holy work. First of all, it's a miracle. Like I drop my kids off at 7 a.m. and there are teachers in the parking lot smiling. And if you're smiling at 7 a.m., that alone is a miracle. I see my teacher friends who are going to Columbia and rallying and advocating on behalf of their students and on behalf of themselves. And, and it's just, it's a difficult profession if you are not in it. You need to appreciate what educators do on a daily basis for our children and the stuff they put up with, ever-changing standards and accountability and critiques from people who have never been in education and mandates passed by people who don't even send their kids to public school. Can I get an amen from somebody? The things that they have to put up with on a daily basis are tough. It's hard work, but it's holy work. I was thinking uh, the past couple of weeks about my very first year teaching. I graduated with a degree in secondary education English and I was barely 21 when I started my first teaching job. It was to teach seventh grade language arts in Dutch Fork Middle School in uh, Irmo, South Carolina. That's where I started my teaching career. And like I said, I was young. I was barely 21 and I was a very naive 21. But I thought I was ready. I did great in college. I packed, passed the praxis with flying colors. I learned all of the theories. I knew all of the jargon. I studied the teacher's editions of the textbook. I made my lesson plans. I color coded my grade book like I was ready. My classroom was immaculate and I was ready until the first day when the students came in and I met the students who would become the first group that I would ever teach. Now, if you are not a teacher, let me enlighten you about something today. First year teachers often don't get, shall we say, the cream of the crop in terms of classes. Um, 
we typically get the students who are like 60 seconds away from juvie, okay? That's how it works with first-year teachers, and that's how it was for me that year. And so, if your first year is a trial by fire, the flames that were handed to me that year were named Gary and Charlie. Y'all, 18 years later, I can close my eyes and I can see those little seventh grade faces. They were probably supposed to be in like 11th grade, but they were still in seventh grade. I can see their faces etched into my memory and I will never forget those young men. And I was sure not to name my own son, Gary or Charlie. Teachers, you know that there's a list, right? These are the names that we will not name our child. If that was a trial by fire, Gary and Charlie were the flames. And y'all, I think they were on a mission to destroy me as a person and as a teacher. And I, I broke the cardinal rule. The cardinal rule for teachers is to never let your students see you cry. It happened. It happened. They broke me, y'all. It was a hard, hard year. But here is what I failed to understand. Those students were not just on a mission to destroy me. Those students were on a mission for love. They were just looking for somebody to care for them. They came into my classroom wounded and broken in ways that I had no idea seventh graders could be wounded and broken because I was a very naive first year teacher. I grew up loving school, loving to read, thriving in an academic environment. And I was so naive that I honestly did not know there were people in the world who did not love to read until I married one. And I thought, what have I done? He does not love to read. I did not understand that there were students who did not wanna get up and go to school every day. It's not necessarily that I was sheltered, but I only saw what I wanted to see. And I saw other students who were like me. And so I assumed when I became a teacher that my students were gonna be excited to come to school. And they weren't all. They were not all excited to come to school because they were carrying heavy baggage that I knew nothing about. And so I thought that very first year that my mission was to teach direct objects and indirect objects and, and subject verb agreement, active and passive voice. I thought that was the entirety of my job was to help my students succeed academically. And what I failed to understand is that my students did not care how much I knew. They wanted me to care. They wanted me to relate to them that that was the first and most important thing to them, not academics. And I'm ashamed to say that it took me a while to get that lesson because I was just frustrated with them. And the more frustrated I got, the worse I'm sure my interactions with them became. And so I can look back on that first year and I can think if only I could see those students today, they're like 30 years old now. I would apologize profusely. First year teachers, we're all feeling that way, right? If you're a teacher, you can look back on your first year and think, oh, I'm so sorry for what I did to you guys. I just wish that I could apologize to them. That first year teacher teaching is hard. But here's what we need to learn as followers of Christ from teachers, that it's never about how much we know, it's about how we can relate. Our job as followers of Christ is to share the gospel with people, right? It is to go out into the world and to share the reason for the hope that we have with people who are hopeless. And if we just dump theology on their head, and if we just spout verse after verse after verse, at some point they're gonna get tired of that because they don't want to be talked down to and only taught. They want us to relate to them. 
And if we don't have a relationship with people, just like I failed to have that relationship with Gary and Charlie, then the end result is going to be a bad one. It's not going to go well, both in the classroom and in our lives as people who share the gospel and witness and help to disciple other people. It's not about what we know, it's about how we can relate. The first passage of scripture we're gonna look at today is in Colossians. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. It's also gonna be up on the screen. And I think these verses in Colossians sort of summarize what really good teachers do on a daily basis. But it's also something that you and I, as followers of Jesus, should do. Chapter three, starting in verse one, if then you have been raised with Christ, so those of us who are believers, that's us, we've been raised with Christ. These are the instructions. You might wanna underline these. Seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. I'm gonna pause there. My first year teaching, I was only focused on earthly things. I was only focused on test scores and academic success and retention rates and promotion. I was only focused on the standards. I was not focused on the relationship, on things that were above for you have died, verse three says, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Here's another instruction. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them. But now, another instruction, you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. When my students did not react to my lessons the way I wanted them to react, I was reacting back with anger. The words that were coming out of my mouth probably had malice and slander in them. I missed the point. Verse nine, do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Verse 12, I think is hugely important for where we're going today. Put on then, think of this as clothing to put on, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. If that doesn't describe a good teacher, I don't know what does. Bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all of these, final instruction here, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. You see, I missed my first year teaching, the instruction to put off what came naturally to me, the anger, right? And I, I missed the instruction to put on the compassion and the kindness and the humility because my goal was wrong. I was focused only on earthly things. And believers, I'm here to tell you this morning that you and I, as we interact with people in the world who do not know our God and who do not follow our Jesus, if we do not put on the things that are instructed here, compassion and kindness and humility, we will never be able to have a relationship with people that will help draw them into the kingdom of God. We will only continue to push them away. And if we are not kind and compassionate people, they will not want what we have anyway. There will be no reason for them to be attracted to our faith. 
Here is what good teachers teach us, that we have to love people as we get people. We have to love them as we get them, right? That is so hard for us. That is the most unnatural thing in the world because when we encounter people, okay, just imagine an experience where you meet somebody new. Don't you immediately start sizing them up when you meet somebody new, you start trying to make sense of who they are because what the brain does is it categorizes things. And we do this with people, we categorize people. Okay, this person is a male, this person is a female. Their job is a doctor, their job is a teacher. This person has similar characteristics to me, so maybe we'll be friends or no, they're very different from me, so we're probably not going to be friends. We start assessing, is this person a threat to me? Do I see them as being superior to me? If so, I don't want any part of that. Or do I feel inferior to them? If so, I'm not gonna want any part of that. We start putting people into categories based on snap judgments. That's how we react. Let me give you an example. How many of you, when you go out in public, let's just say Walmart for the sake of, for the, sake of the argument. If you go out in public, do you ever get annoyed with people being people? People acting like people. I go to Walmart, y'all, and I just say, Jesus, you must be coming soon. Like I question the future of the human race based on people's behavior sometimes at Walmart. And I'll give you an example. There are people who do not understand, and if this is you, consider this a lesson, that the same traffic laws apply in the grocery store with the buggy as apply on the road with a car. You stay to the right, you yield, you watch for on oncoming traffic, you don't suddenly break. You know, the same laws apply and there are people who don't understand that. And so I get annoyed sometimes with people being people. Another annoyance that I have is when we are in a public space and someone takes out their phone and they watch a video on full volume with no regard for the people sitting around them. It's unacceptable. Get some AirPods or whatever they're called, right? Like don't put it on full volume for the entire audience to hear. People being people can be annoying, right? Because when we encounter other people, we start sizing them up and judging them. And if their behavior is something different from what our behavior in that situation would be, we automatically judge them as being wrong, right? Like, how dare they? I would never listen to a video on full volume. And so we start making those rash judgments. But this is what's true of teachers. This is what's true. So the people who are being people in Walmart, they procreate and they have children and their children come into public school classrooms and teachers have no control over who comes into their classrooms. You know this, right? You can't stand at the door and say, I'm sorry, you are not allowed entrance. That's not the way it works. Teachers have to welcome whoever comes into their classroom, even the children of the people being people. Now guys, you realize that sometimes you're a person being a person, right? Like, Sometimes the things that you and I do are what's getting on everybody else's nerves. Teachers don't get to choose who comes into their classrooms and so they, they welcome them and not only do they allow them entrance, but they are gonna spend either 90 days if they're a high school teacher, 180 days if they're um, an elementary school teacher with those children and they have a task to accomplish they have to teach the standards that the state mandates to those children. 
They don't just tolerate their existence in the classroom, but they have to take them from where they are to where they need to be in the course of 180 days. And there are tests, there are assessments to see if they've passed or they failed. And so the lesson that you and I can learn from educators this morning is that not only are we to take people as we get them, but we're to treat them like teachers treat their students. And have y'all ever seen the way, especially elementary school teachers, y'all are better at this than I was as a high school teacher, the way they love their kids. Teachers love their students. Now, now, don't get me wrong. Sometimes they get on our nerves, right? Because they're children. And sometimes we wish their behavior was different, but teachers love their children. And so the lesson for us is to love people as we get them, to see, see people like teachers do with the eyes of the creator, When you look at them, you know there is potential in that person. And my job as a teacher and my job as a disciple of Christ is to take that person from where they currently are to where God wants them to be, to understand that what I see being manifested on the outside is not the entirety of what's going on with that person, that there's stuff going on on the inside that we don't know about, that we have to take into account. That is what you and I are to do as believers, to see potential in people and understand that negative behavior, what we would consider bad behavior, is always a cry for help. It's always a cry for help because there's something going on in that person's life that they can't handle and that they don't know what to do with. And it's our job as a believer to move them from where they are to where they need to be. One of the things that happens at the beginning of a school year for a teacher is that she gets the roster of who's gonna be in her class. And um, I had a very good friend who taught across the hall from me. And she, when she got her roster, she would not even look at it until the morning that the students were to arrive. And she would say, you know, I'm not looking at this because I don't want to hear any other teacher's perspective on that child. That's one thing that often teachers do, right? As we size the children up and say, okay, who had this kid last year? What can you tell me? She said, I didn't wanna do that because I wanted them to come in my room and it be a safe place where I have no preconceived ideas of who they are, who they aren't, what they can do and what they can't. How would the world be different if you and I just accepted people as they came? Just accept them as they come. That's what my friend did. And I always admired her so much for that. But here's an important part of loving people as we get them. If that's one of the important things that we are learning today from educators, if we're to love people as we get them, we also have to understand where they are. And that takes a little bit of effort on our part. We have to go into their lives and see what their life is currently like. So up on the screen, they're gonna put um, a a graphic here for you guys to look at. This is something that all educators are taught when they are in school training to be a teacher. It is called Maslow's Hierarchy of Needs, okay? And this is just a very simple pyramid that illustrates for us human growth and development in terms of behavior. So I'm thinking about somebody with a newborn baby, okay? For example, Katie, our four kids director, she does an amazing job. She has a newborn baby girl and the baby, Ella Kate, she right now is at the bottom of the pyramid where she is needing her physiological needs met, okay? She needs food, she needs sleep, she needs somebody to take care of her because she can't move herself, right? So she is in that bottom part of the pyramid with her physiological needs being met. And as those needs are met, the next stage in her development is safety. She's learning that the world is a safe place because she's being taken care of, right? Her needs are being met. 
she feels secure. Now that's different from, for an adult, okay? For an adult, it might be that they have a safe place to live. They're in relationships that don't harm them. But the premise is the same. Our physiological needs have to be met before we can progress into feeling safe. Once we are safe, then we understand love and belonging and we can be in relationship with people, um, you know, with a, a significant other, with friends, in a church community. We learn that that is a safe place to be. So what I want us to understand this morning is that when we come to church and we are trying to understand what it's like to have a relationship with the Lord, we are in the tippy top part of the pyramid there called self-actualization. That's where we are understanding and debating like issues of morality, trying to eradicate prejudice and trying to, to figure out how faith fits into life. That's what we're focused on most of the time when we gather as believers, the self-actualization phase. But what I think can happen for us if we have all of the lower levels of the pyramid met in our personal lives, we can forget what it's like not to have those needs met. And let me just give you a simple example. If you are in here right now and you did not get a good night's sleep last night, all you're thinking is, I need her to wrap this up so I can go home and get a nap. Or if you're hungry, the grumbling of your stomach is what you're focused on, right? We always go back and forth in that pyramid. If there's a physiological need not being met, that is the loudest cry in our lives. That's what we're paying attention to the most. And so what can happen in churches and what can happen among believers is that we forget about all of those lower levels of the pyramid. We're only focused on issues of morality. We're only focused on theological concepts to the neglect of the lower levels. And when we encounter people, if they are hungry, if they are unsafe, if they don't have a place to live, if their physiological needs are not being met or if their safety needs are not being met or if they're not in loving relationships where they feel like they belong, there is a block where they cannot even receive all of the deep concepts that we're throwing at them. Does that make sense? Think about that, guys. When we encounter people on a daily basis, if our only goal is to meet their spiritual needs and we don't feed them, then it's a self-defeating action. We are never going to reach their hearts if we don't feed their stomachs. Sometimes I think we can get overly spiritual and forget that basic needs must be met. Did Jesus feed people? Absolutely. He knew their physiological needs needed to be met before their spiritual needs could be fully satisfied. Now, don't hear me wrong and say that their spiritual needs are not important. We can preach the gospel while we're simultaneously feeding people, okay? That can happen, but we cannot neglect the bottom part of the pyramid. Think about what it looked like. That was the largest part, right? That was the largest part because it is so important. That is the foundation of our lives, having our physical needs met. So sometimes the most spiritual thing that we can do for a new mom, for example, is not say I'm praying for you, but take that baby and let that mama get a nap. Or if someone is hungry, give them a meal. That sometimes will meet people spiritually in a way that just preaching a message at them will not. We need to stop being so spiritual sometimes and focus on truly helping people. Teachers do this, don't they? Teachers in their classrooms have crackers for kids who are hungry because they know they're not gonna learn if they're not being fed. This is why we have programs in schools where backpacks are sent home on the weekends full of food so the kids can eat over the weekend. Do you know how many kids only get meals at school? It's overwhelming. 
And so we have programs to feed those children over the weekend. So when it comes Monday morning, they'll be in a state where they are ready to learn. And we're not starting from scratch again, feeding them. We have to meet people's needs. You know, in Philippians, it talks about Jesus being a servant. He did not consider equality with God the most important thing. He humbled himself, right? And he took the form of a human being, of a servant. You and I must do the same thing. We have to humble ourselves and stop thinking of ourselves as only being able to meet spiritual needs. We have to, as believers, get our hands dirty. And that sometimes can be uncomfortable, It's so easy to look at people who are in tough situations and tell them what the answers are. Well, if you would just do X, Y, and Z, we give them a 12-step program, right? We tell them all the things they need to do in order to fix their lives. And sometimes they don't need us telling, uh, telling them how to fix their lives. They need us to get in the trenches with them and help them do the work. The best teachers I ever had were not the ones who just gave me the answers. I used to, in fact, because I was a nerd, I would hate when teachers would give me a study sheet that had all of the answers to all of the questions that were gonna be on a test because that's not real learning, right? That's just memorization. It's just regurgitation. The best teachers I ever had were the ones who taught me how to find the answers for myself. They were the ones who taught me what the sources of knowledge were. Do you get where I'm going? That has spiritual implications for us. We are not just to tell people, hey, Jesus is the answer, but we are to lead them to him. We are to show them that he is the source of everything that they will need in their lives. If we just shout that he is the answer and we don't show that he is the answer, they will become deaf to our cries. They will not hear what we are saying. Our actions can be more powerful than our words. In Colossians, there at the end in verse 12, think about what it told us to clothe ourselves with. Compassion, right? Kindness, humility, forgiveness, love. When I name those, when you see those written, which of those do you lack the most? Which one is naturally the hardest for you? My husband is a man of compassion and he is married to a woman who struggles with it. Like it's just not my natural go-to. I'm more of a, hey, pull yourself up by the bootstraps kind of girl. That's naturally who I am. Compassion is something I have to ask for. Lord, would you show me how to meet that person where they are? Would you show me how to meet their needs? Give me a heart for them. In all of those areas that it tells us, this is what you're to wear, this is what you're to put on. If we don't have it, it's because we're not asking for it. If we ask for it, God will give it to us, right? He wants us to be people who represent him to the world. And so if we ask for those things, he will give them. God, this morning, would you give us compassion? Would you help us to be kind? Above all, would you help us to put on love, not judgment and condescension and categorizing people and all of those things that I mentioned earlier, Gary and Charlie did not need my earthly knowledge. They needed my compassion. They needed my kindness. And if I could see them today, that's what I would tell them. I'm so sorry that I did not meet the needs that you had. So guys, we are to love people as we get them. We are to acknowledge what their needs are and meet them in those needs. And we are also to understand that there is no person who is undeserving of the love of God. I want you to turn to Acts chapter 10. 
That is where we're gonna look at a story today that is super powerful. It's about two men, one who is a Jew who has become a follower of Christ, okay? The apostle Peter, and the other who is a Gentile, who is um, a Roman officer, okay? Two different men who at the beginning of this story do not know each other. They have no contact, no communication with each other, but the, the Lord brings them together. So Acts chapter 10, verse one is where we're gonna pick up with this story. So at Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, this is the Gentile, a centurion, the Roman leader, of what was known as the Italian cohort. A devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And as you would expect, he stared at him in terror and said, what is it, Lord? And he said to him, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who was called Peter. Okay, this is the Peter we're gonna see in just a second. So he gives us instruction to go find Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner whose house is by the sea. When the angel spoke to him, when the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who had attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. So the instruction is go find Peter. Cornelius does not understand why, but it's a vision from the Lord, so he's going to obey. Okay, so that's part one of the story. Part two of the story is what happens next with Peter. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time, what God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times. And the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Now, for us today, for you and for me, we would probably not understand if someone didn't teach us this, the significance of, being, of Peter being told that he could eat anything. Okay, think about what was on that great sheet, right? Birds, reptiles, all kinds of animals. And Peter's being told to kill those animals and eat them. For Peter, who was a Jew, he was not allowed to just kill and eat anything that he wanted to eat. There were very strict dietary laws for Jews. And he had known these from the time he was a child. There are very specific instructions, okay? If you've ever heard of eating kosher, it's kind of the same thing, okay? There are things you can eat, things that you can't eat. And so Peter would have known that. That would have been super important to his culture. Think about how that would affect your daily schedule, right? You can't just walk into Ingles and get anything. There are certain things you have to buy. Not that he had an Ingles, but you get my point. Okay, so if you wanna read more about that, you can look in Leviticus chapter 11. That's where it gives a lot of the laws about what you could and couldn't eat. So when Peter hears this instruction, eat anything you want, his initial reaction is, what? I can't, I can't do that. I have never eaten anything that is unclean because the language that is used in Leviticus to describe the foods are clean and unclean. It says, these are the things you were allowed to eat and these things are con considered detestable. So if they ate the things that were considered detestable, they would become ceremonially unclean. 
okay? They could not just eat anything. It was a huge deal that we can't even begin to wrap our minds around. Now, the reason I'm telling you this is because of what he heard the Lord's voice say. He hears the Lord's voice say, do not call, uh, excuse me, what God has made clean, do not call common. Do not call these things common if I have made them clean. And it's not just about the food. I want us to look in verse 25 now at the interaction between Cornelius, don't forget about him, and Peter, because they now encounter each other. And remember that Peter was a Jew and Cornelius was a Gentile. And if you know anything about Jews and Gentiles during this time, they were not really gonna associate with, with, with each other. They would not have dinner together. They would not hang out and talk about religious matters together. They were separate. And in verse 25, this is what happens. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshiped him because he thought he was a God. But Peter lifted him up saying, stand up, I too am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, all these Gentiles, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. You see, what God showed him about food is now extended to people. And I want you to think about how this would have rocked Peter's world and Cornelius's world. Prior to this, Jews and Gentiles were, were separated, right? They were not able to interact with each other in the way that you and I can interact with each other today. It would have been unheard of. And so God does hear what God does in our lives. And he, he takes the old way and he says, no, here is the new, better way. He takes all of the restrictions on our lives and he gives us freedom, right? He does what God does. And Peter and Cornelius would have been astounded by this. It would have revolutionized their lives and their worlds. And I want you to think about what that means for us today. We talked about earlier how when we encounter people, we naturally start to categorize them, don't we? Our brains make, make sense of who people are by putting them in categories. And in our own minds, we can even categorize people clean and unclean, acceptable and detestable, like with the food. We categorize people as us and them. If you have been on social media in the past few years, if you have turned on the news, you can see how this is affecting our society, right? There is such division and such hostility because we are dividing people along very strict lines and we are making assumptions that there can be no crossover. And if, if this is something you believe, then you cannot have any association with me over here. And we draw these hard lines and it causes division and it prevents the unity that you talked about, Pastor Phil, in the kingdom of God. God has said to Peter and he has said to us, do not call common, do not call these things unclean if I have made them clean. And through Jesus, we are all clean, right? We are all members of the kingdom of God. We all belong. There's a place for all of us. It's no longer us and them, clean and unclean, acceptable and detestable. Through Christ, we all have access to God. And so when we fall back on what naturally happens to us, putting people in different categories, then we are missing what God 
has done. And that has made people clean when they believe in and trust in and follow his son, Jesus Christ. Teachers do not put students in categories of you are acceptable in my classroom or you are detestable. And you and I cannot put people that we encounter on a daily basis into categories of acceptable and detestable. And if you're honest with yourself today, you have done that in the past week where you have looked at someone and you have cast judgment on them because of something, whether it's their behavior or their looks or their gender or whatever. We've all done it because that's what humans in our flesh do. We reject, we judge, we criticize, we condemn. And God is saying, I am offering you a better way. The new command, if you have been raised in Christ, the new command is to accept and to see people that were previously unclean as clean. They are now acceptable to me. He destroyed the hierarchy that you and I make for people that no longer exist. We have to love people as we get them and we cannot withhold love because we'd rather judge. In John 15, Jesus is giving some instructions here to his disciples about how to love people. And this is what he says, John 15 verse 12 this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Now, obviously that's what Jesus literally did, right? Was he sacrificed his life for us. He literally gave up his life. That is an extreme version of laying down your life for your friends. But you and I are called on a daily basis to do the same, to sacrifice for people, right? We have to understand that in order to meet the needs that people have, to meet them where they are, to love them as we encounter them, to love them as we get them, we have to sacrifice of ourselves. We have to sacrifice our time and our money and our comfort. We have to sacrifice maybe watching a TV show at night to go counsel someone. We have to make sacrifices, but that is the example of Christ and that is what we are to follow. And that does not come naturally, does it? Those of you who have picked up your children in the car line in the afternoons know that you have to sacrifice, right? By letting people get in line, right? Taking turns. Some people don't understand that in the car line. It doesn't come naturally to sacrifice our turn, but sometimes for the sake of the greater good, that's what we have to do. It does not come naturally to sacrifice. We have to ask God, show me, show me where I can give of myself. Show me where I have something to offer someone who is hurting or someone who has a need that I can meet. You know, that's why the Lord blesses you sometimes, right? It's not for your own sake. It's so you can pass that blessing on to someone else. God, show us how we can sacrifice of our own lives and our own resources and our own time for someone else. Here's a key y'all to loving people, to giving and loving and giving and loving because it's a cycle, right? Teachers do this on a daily basis. They go to school, they pour themselves out every single day. Did you know that if you keep pouring yourself out over and over and over in the flesh, that eventually you'll become burnt out if one thing does not happen? If you're gonna pour out in the flesh over and over and over, you have to be filled in the Spirit. You have to be filled in the Spirit before you can pour out in the flesh. That's the only way we can keep on giving and sacrificing and loving and meeting needs. If we're doing that without the empowerment of the Spirit, we will become bitter 
and resentful and tired, right? Depleted. We have to be filled in the Spirit so we can pour out in the flesh. And a key to loving people as we get them and meeting the actual needs that they have is to understand that even though everybody needs the same thing, they can't receive it the same way. I was taught this when I was in school training to be a teacher, that there are different learning styles and there are different uh, types of intelligences. So how many of you guys like to read um, books by listening, like audible books? How many of you listen? Okay, how many of you like an e-reader, Kindle? How many of you need an old fashioned book that you can crack up in the spine and smell? (laughs) Okay, now we're all reading with all of those types of devices, right? We're all reading, we're all getting the same information if we were reading the same book, but we're doing it in different ways. Why? Because we were created differently. Some of you are audible learners. You need to hear it, you're auditory. Some people would rather see it. Some people need to manipulate things with their hands. They're kinesthetic learners. That's their learning style. In education, we try to meet all of those learning styles. In a classroom, my job was to figure out how my students learned and to offer lessons that met them there. Likewise, all people are intelligent. This is something that might be revolutionary for you because we tend to think of people as being smart or not smart, right? Intelligent or average. That's not the case. And guys, if you'll put up the slide about the, the multiple intelligences, if you know anything about education, these are the different ways that people are intelligent. So it's not that you're smart or you're dumb, but you have a form of intelligence. There are some people who are bodily kinesthetic. That means that they are maybe athletes or they're great dancers. Okay, that is a type of intelligence. There are people who are logical and mathematical and that is not me. That is not me. Uh, Likewise, spatial. Did y'all ever take those standardized tests where it gave you an object and told you like to rotate it uh, 180 degrees and to flip it around? Could y'all do that? I could not, my mind was always blown. I was like, I don't know what I'm looking at. That is not my form of intelligence. But if you need me to do anything linguistic, I'm your girl. Okay, that's where my form of intelligence lies. And in a classroom, a teacher has to do what's called differentiate. Just like we're trying to meet people with um, auditory learning styles and people who are kinesthetic, who need to touch things. We also need to meet them in these types of intelligences. This is why we get kids up and have them move around and not just sit in the desk because your, your bodily kinesthetic learners need that. Do you see where I'm going with this? The same thing is true in the kingdom of God. We are all created differently but we all have our strengths. And if we are going to be the kingdom of God as it is intended to be, we need to offer everyone the same thing, which is the gospel, but we need to offer it in the ways that they can receive it. The gospel itself does not change. We will not change the word of God, but we will change the way we present it. I am not gonna counsel two people exactly the same way because that's not what they need. We have to figure out what makes people tick. We have to figure out their strengths. We have to get to know them well enough so that we can relate to them. Going back to my very first point with Gary and Charlie, right? We have to figure out how to relate to people. We have to differentiate in the kingdom so that everyone can get the good news of the gospel. Now, is that hard work? Yes, in a classroom of 30 children, when you're trying to differentiate for all of the intelligences and all of the learning styles, it can be overwhelming, but it has to be done. 
It has to be done or you're going to miss kids. Just like with the No Child Left Behind Education Act, y'all remember that with old President Bush? George W. Okay, I think the intent of that act was good. Don't leave anybody behind. The methods were questionable, but I think the intent was good. The same thing is true with us, right? No one left behind. We do what it takes to bring people into the kingdom, to share the gospel with them, to meet them where they are, to love them with the needs that they have. That is what you and I are called to do. And that is not a lazy faith, right? That's not a faith that shows up on a Sunday morning and that's it. That's all we do spiritually for the week. That's not a faith that works. And I know the heart of Four Points. I know our pastor, I know our staff. I know our heart is to meet people's needs, meet them where they are and introduce them to the God who can supply all of their needs according to His riches. That is our desire. And I wanna share with you from the message version, 1 Corinthians 9, because I think this summarizes how we go about doing this. Even though I am free of the demands and expectations of everyone, I have voluntarily, voluntarily, that means we choose to become a servant to any and all in order to reach a wide range of people. Religious, non-religious, meticulous, moralist, loose living, immoralist, the defeated, the demoralized, whoever. We voluntarily choose to become servants to meet all the types of people there are. Now listen, he says, I didn't take on their way of life. I kept my bearings in Christ, but I entered their world and tried to experience things from their point of view. If only I had done that with Gary and Charlie, things might've turned out differently. If you and I will try to experience things from people's point of view, we will not get annoyed with them being people acting like people. We will see their behavior as showing us what they need. I've become just about every sort of servant there is in my attempts to lead those I meet into a God-saved life. I did all this because of the message. I didn't just wanna talk about it. I wanted to be in on it. And that is the invitation for you this morning. Do you wanna be in on it? Do you want to be a follower of Jesus who is loving people as you get them, as you encounter them? who meets the actual needs they have, who offers the same gospel, but differently as people can receive it. If we want to be those kinds of believers, it starts with the intentional choice all the way back in Colossians to get rid of the perspective of only looking at earthly things, to keep our minds focused on the things above and then clothing ourselves with the Christ-like characteristics and not just what comes naturally to us. We see our teachers doing this on a daily basis and that is a challenge for us to follow their example, to do what it takes to get people where they need to be. Now, I don't wanna close this service without going back to the very beginning there of Colossians 3. It says, if then you have been raised with Christ, these are the things that are asked of you. If you have not been raised with Christ, if you are not a believer today, and if you have not surrendered your life to Jesus, none of this is going to be possible in the flesh. You will get, as I said earlier, burnt out. You will get tired. You will get resentful. You will be physically unable to live this kind of lifestyle. It's only if you have been raised with Christ. And so today we offer you the opportunity to be raised with Christ. If you are tired of living that old cycle where you're trying and then you're defeated and you're trying and you're defeated and you can't be good enough and you can't conquer it on your own, Jesus is saying, follow me. 
I will supernaturally enable you to do these things and be these things. I will fill you with my spirit and revolutionize your life like I revolutionized Peter and Cornelius's, but you have to surrender. And so if that is you this morning, you can text the word Jesus on your phone to the number that you're gonna see on the screen. You can fill it out on the card that you were given this morning. You can let us know, yes, I'm ready to follow Jesus. And for the rest of us who do follow Jesus, who have been raised with Christ, it is a choice. It is a choice to clothe ourselves with all of those things, compassion, kindness, forgiveness, and love so that we can go out and meet people where they are, love them as they come to us and give them what they need in Christ. We're gonna close in prayer this morning and I just want you to ask the Lord to give you what you lack when it comes to living this kind of sacrificial life. Because if you lack it and you ask for it, He will provide it. He is a good Father who wants you to follow Him. So let's pray, Lord, We just ask your words to pierce our hearts today. All of the the verses we read this morning, Lord, about the things that we are to do, we know that we can't do them on our own and in our own power, Lord. We can't just will ourselves into being sacrificial and to laying ourselves down. It's only by being filled with your spirit that we can pour out, God. It's only by knowing you more that we can be more like you. This starts with a daily dying to self, a daily decision to do the things that you have asked us to do, God, because so much is at stake. Just like there are children who need an education, Lord, so they can escape the cycles that their families have been in for generations, Lord. Even more importantly, there are people who need the gospel, who need the hope of Jesus so they can escape the hopelessness, Lord, that has plagued them their entire lives. So much is at stake, God. Let us think about that as we make our daily choices. Let us see people we encounter, not just as people who annoy us with their behavior, God, but who need something. And they can get that something from us, whether it is a physical need, Lord, or whether it is a spiritual teaching. Let us be able to discern the needs that people have. God, you are good. You are good to us. You are good to all of your children. And we pray that we will follow your example, that we will share your love because we will remember how you have loved us. Let us never take it for granted. Thank you, God, for your word. It's in your name we pray, amen.